there's a certain skill in looking at the world and saying, what's missing? So rewriting the map, I think, is a really important part of what I've tried to do throughout my career. Sometimes with more success than others. Most of the great companies were started by people who wanted to solve a problem. They weren't primarily motivated by cash in the check. If you have a real community, you care about the people in it. They're not there for you, you're there for them. Hello and welcome to Developer Love, the podcast for people who build developer communities. We'll hear from people working to win the hearts and minds of developers, including founders, execs, and the top minds in developer relations, dev marketing, and community management. I'm Patrick Woods, the CEO of Orbit, the community experience platform. Developer Love is brought to you by Heavybit, an accelerator and venture fund dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. Today, I'm speaking with Tim O'Reilly. Tim is the founder, CEO, and chairman of O'Reilly Media. He's also a partner at the early stage venture firm O'Reilly Alpha Tech Ventures and serves on several boards, including Code for America. His most recent book is called WTF, What's the Future and Why It's Up to Us. Tim, thank you so much for coming on to Developer Love. It means a lot. I'm excited to have this discussion. I know our audience will be as well. To dive right in, I really want to start with, with the idea of community. Your career is marked by the convening of interesting people, influential people to tackle big, interesting questions, uh, including the reframe from free software to open source. As mentioned, the audience of this podcast skews really heavily towards community builders, uh, largely developer communities. So I wonder what lessons and tactics have you picked up over the years of building communities that have sustained impact? You know, How would you describe the sort of lessons learned from a career of changing people's views on things? There are really a couple of very closely intertwined lessons, and they really start with noticing things that other people don't notice. Because what you're really trying to do is not create a community, you're, you're trying to recognize one that already exists. I actually kind of first heard that idea from a guy named Brian Irwin, who I worked with in the very early days when we first published the whole Internet User's Guide. And he had been the director of activism for the Sierra Club. We'd hired him to do PR. It was the very early days of the Internet. You know, just We were marketing on Usenet, and he, he once said to me, it's very hard to assemble a community, but it, it's a lot easier to find one that already exists. And so he, he was just very good at just finding people who cared about things and he gave them free copies of the book. And we just kind of, he kind of taught me in a certain way uh, the whole marketing by activism that I practiced ever since. So if we go all the way back to that free software and open source moment, it was really that I recognized that I was part of a set of different communities through you know, the books I was publishing. And I recognized that they had a lot in common. And I was surprised to find that the free software community did not include things that were so obviously part of the same movement. So you would read the account of the free software movement, and it was all focused around the, the GNU license, you know, the GNU system and the uh, GPL. And I said, well, gee, why don't they include, you know, all this stuff that came out of Berkeley Unix? Now, again, I had really come into the developer community and into Unix and the Internet through, through Berkeley Unix much more than through Linux. And uh, Berkeley Unix was sort of a little bit on hold because they'd been sued by AT&T. But, you know, I had been a tech writing consultant working with, you know, private companies that were licensing, you know, either System 5 or BSD or taking elements from each of them before Linux even existed. 
And I kind of knew that there was this software developer community around Unix, and it had nothing to do with the Free Software Foundation, which was sort of a, a you know relative latecomer to the Linux party. They were you know the idea that we're going to build a free version of Unix actually came after the community that had originally built Unix. I you know I knew that there were all the, the software that I had used. I'd gotten copies of software from various universities, and you know it was this shared software community. You know that had started from the very beginning of Unix. So I said, "Why aren't you including those things? And why aren't you including the World Wide Web? Why aren't you including the Internet?" And so, what I tried to do with the event that became the Open Source Summit. You know, only a couple of us were familiar with the term at the time, and I was not one of them. Uh, but it was just seeing that hey, all you people ought to be talking to each other. Like, I knew the people over from the internet community. I knew the people from the BSD community, and I knew people from the Linux community and the uh, Free Software Foundation community. And I said, gee, let's bring all these people together and talk about what we have in common. And it was out of that meeting, just a couple of weeks before, uh, Mozilla had just released their browser was open source, and it was Apache. And I just said, let's bring all these people together into the same tent. And then, of course... At that meeting, Christine Peterson, a few weeks before, had come up with this new name, Open Source, and it was just, it was one of the topics of discussion, and we said, let's do a vote. And then, of course, I had already arranged a press release at the end of the day, and that was the tutelage of Brian Irwin from our earlier, uh, five years earlier, we'd been marketing the commercial internet in the same way, which is this, this new thing, you all don't know about it. And in some ways, this was a continuation of that marketing for me, because the storyline that I told to the assembled reporters who came because I had credibility from that earlier work on promoting the commercial internet and the World Wide Web. You know, they came and I said, look, uh, you guys think of free software as this rogue thing that's hostile to commercial software, and I'm here to tell you that you already use it. You all use it. You know, you guys, you say NewYorkTimes.com. Do you know why that works? Well, it's because this guy here, Paul Vixie, he, you know, he, he wrote and maintained something called the Berkeley Internet Name Demon, which is what translates uh, IP addresses into domain names. Oh, you send email. This guy, Eric Allman, also from Berkeley, you know, wrote SendMail, which routes at that point about three-quarters of the Internet's email. And so I kind of went down the line, and I finally got to Linux Torvalds. You know, it's like, okay, and, and you know, some of you may use Linux. You know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was, it was a really, really interesting experience for me because, there was this sort of sense of disbelief. And then I got interviewed by people for, I don't know, it must have been a week or two, just intense interviews, you know, 10 a day. And then it became the accepted wisdom that the Internet was built on this new thing that was called open source. And so the point was that we hadn't made a community. We had seen and recognized one. And I think of a similar kind of thing that my colleague Dale Doherty did around the maker movement. You know, there's a class of people who didn't think of themselves as being part of the same movement. And Dale kind of created this new name that said, you all belong in this big tent. You know, and I think about things like um, at the very first Maker Fair, one pavilion belonged to um, you know, a group uh, that was basically doing uh, modern clothes and then having a fashion show at the end of the day. And the next booth over was the Alameda Contra Costa Computer Recycling Society showing off their biodiesel-powered supercomputer made out of recycled PCs. And the fact that these two things were defined as being part of the same movement had enormous power. And, and the other piece about this was it, it, it had an identity. 
Mm. You know, a maker is an identity. Uh, an open source developer was an identity. A Web 2.0 company was an identity. People aspired to it. It meant something. It was a story. You know, and in each case, there were people who kind of stood out as exemplars of that identity. You know, like in the case of of open source software, it was Linus Torvalds. It was Brian Bellendorf from Apache. It was you know, I mean, after we did that press release, you know, I think it was Forbes or Fortune kind of did this spread of these developers who nobody had heard of, and suddenly they were like superstars. And in the case of the maker movement, it was projects like Arduino and 3D printing and, and the people associated with these things. And it was the people behind the technologies that were part of it. And it still goes on, I think, of you know, when we really kind of pulled together the DevOps community with our Velocity Conference or when we first started to really look at big data and Web 2.0. But also, even recently, I was just talking with a guy, Tito Jankowski, who's uh, you know, somebody who I, I've known for a long time but haven't been in touch with, and he called me up with his new effort. He's working in clean energy around carbon capture, and he started something called airminers.org. And I said, oh, Tito, that's such a great name, you know, because you're tying together everybody from people who are extracting carbon dioxide to sell to Coca-Cola uh, with people who are uh, making concrete in new ways. You know, you've created this crazy great identity. An air, I'm an airminer. You know, and there's this whole resonance. And again, this is a little far from the developer community, but you can kind of get that idea that, you know, I was just urging him, you have to tell a story about the opportunity and the size of the movement. You've got this great meme, now fill it out. You know, like when I wrote What is Web 2.0, I had some ideas, that, and we started with the idea that the web was coming back after the dot-com bust, it wasn't over, and we started to identify characteristics of the companies that had survived versus the ones that had failed. But then I realized, oh, I've been talking about this whole idea of the Internet as platform, I've been talking about the rise of big data, and so I wrote this paper that tried to kind of give this intellectual backstory to this identity. So I guess I would just say, if you're trying to build a developer community, think about who else is in it besides you and the people who, you know, like I think the mistake a lot of companies make is they think that their developer community are simply the people who use their software. And you have to actually think of it a little bit like the Japanese idea of the karetsu, you know, people who use my software also use this and here's what we have in common. And if you can find an identity and a, and a, and a movement that links you with a bunch of other people, potentially people who are bigger and more visible and more powerful than you, that's really great. Yeah, I'm curious about the frameworks or the mental models you've applied to identify these people that are placing these bets or starting these conversations in interesting new arenas, whether it's open source or Web 2.0 or what have you. you know, what are the models or frameworks you've applied to identify those people and bring them together? Well, a lot of what I try to do... Um, I think, you know, I was deeply influenced in my early life by the work of, again, Alfred Korzybski, uh, founder of General Semantics. And he, his most famous uh, line is, the map is not the territory. And I think one of the issues is that so many people think in terms of these received maps that tell the story a particular way. And there's a certain skill in looking at the world and saying, what's missing? You know, if you just are, are kind of in a receptive place, and, you know, it starts to bother you. Like, again, going back to that original free software example, saying, why aren't they talking about Apache? Why aren't they talking about 
the World Wide Web. You know, why aren't they talking about you know TCP/IP and all, all this associated suite of utilities? And going well, we need a map that includes all of those things. So rewriting the map, I think, is a really important part of what I've tried to do throughout my career. Sometimes with more success than others. You know, if you know, like four or five years ago, I started really working on something I was calling the next economy. You know, and I have been very, very concerned about economics and the way that I'm still kind of working that one, and it hasn't quite crystallized. But you know, the same thing was true in in say Web 2.0. I mean, I started. I, in some ways, I've done one body of thought as I keep drawing a map that gets bigger and bigger. You know, I, I started with the commercial internet. Hey, how could that be? And of course, the internet relied a lot on open source, which led me there. And you know, Perl was at one point called the duct tape of the internet, and so I got deeply into free software. And then I was trying to explain it. And then the more I thought about it, and I thought, oh, all this focus on licenses is wrong. It's really about new software-enabled collaboration. It's about you know, everything from crowdsourcing to new kinds of software development methodologies. It's about collaboration at a distance. And then I also had this idea, it's about the commodification of software. And then I go, oh, well, when one thing commodifies, something else becomes valuable, which got, got me thinking about, well, what will be the thing that becomes valuable and the new source of lock-in that came up with this kind of big data, you know? And it's just because I was just trying to make sense of the world from first principles and then tell a story about it that was actionable and useful to people. And, you know, I'm still trying to do that. I'm, you know, I've been reading a lot of economics over the past five years and trying to understand platform economics in a lot of ways. You know, like I, I've used it to guide my own thinking at my own company, but also just what's going wrong with Facebook and Amazon and and Google, uh, you know, in terms of, of they're building an economic system that they're really in charge of, and is it reproducing a lot of the problems of our broader economy, i.e. the haves and the have-nots, and, mm. and the returns uh, go to a disproportionately small number of people over time, and why is that, and how do we fix it? But I haven't come up with the, the meme yet that kind of captures that in quite the right way. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's actually a great transition. Uh, you wrote once that just as gene engineering allows us to artificially shape genes, meme engineering lets us organize and shape ideas so they can be transmitted more effectively. You know, I'm interested, from your perspective, what would you say are the characteristics of a meme that's more likely to spread? You know, what are the contours or the characteristics of, of that? You know, I wish I knew. I do think that my personal focus has been much more trying simply to tell the underlying truth that I see. And often the name has arrived unasked. You know, so for example, again, back to open source, it was Christine Peterson who came up with that in a separate meeting a couple of weeks before the one that I organized. In the case of Web 2.0, I, I had actually been for three or four years, I'd been talking about the internet operating system, which was too geeky and everybody was, even people who were, yeah, I still remember Bram Cohen, you know, the founder of BitTorrent, uh, making fun of it, even though, you know, it's pretty obvious now that the internet was becoming the platform and, you know, it didn't have the same characteristics as a previous operating system, but that was my whole point. It's like operating systems are changing. We're going to be making our application calls to things in the sky. And yeah, sure, we are now, but in 2004, that seemed really crazy. But it was Dale Doherty who kind of came in with this idea that we should do a conference about the second coming of the World Wide Web. And I just said, oh, that's a great name for this thing I've been talking about. And uh, Dale came up with the maker movement, you know, kind of framing as well. And in the case of the DevOps, I, we didn't come up with the name. We did organize the event. But that was also driven by a community that came to us. 
literally we were at OSCON and a group of, uh, I don't know, a half dozen people came in. Arthur Bergman, who's uh, founder of Fastly, which uh, is now a very successful uh, company. They went public and, and have been very successful. Uh, I think it was uh, uh, Jesse Robbins, who was the so-called master of disaster at uh, Amazon. And, <laughs> and they, they said to me, you, you wrote this piece where you said that I wrote a blog post called Operations, the New Secret Sauce. And they said it was the first time anybody had said that our tribe was important. You know? <laughs> and they said, we need to make a gathering place for our tribe. That's where we started something called the Velocity Conference. And out of that whole conversation and bringing the people together, the term DevOps was coined. And then much later, SRE kind of came in as a part of that. But I think, you know, a lot of it is kind of seeing people who belong together and then bringing them together. And, you know, it's kind of what I do also with our free annual event, which is called Foo Camp, Friends of O'Reilly Camp, which we've done mm-hmm. since 2003 and a version on for science with Google and Nature since 2004 and more recently on, on big data and the social sciences with Sage and, and Facebook. You know, it's just like bringing people together. And, you know, we're actually doing uh, Foo Camp this year as sort of a rolling series of virtual sessions spanning months. And it's really kind of fun because it's actually, I think it may be a more effective modality than bringing people together for the weekend, even though it's not as much fun. You know, we are all drinking whiskey and staying <laughs> up till all hours playing Orwolf. Uh, but it's kind of great because we invite somebody, they, they propose a talk. It's an unconference, people propose talks. And then we go, oh, you know, like we had one on what do we need to do to fix democracy. And in the course of this talk, which was proposed by some of the people we initially invited, we're like, oh, wow, we really ought to have these other six people in this conversation. And we go, oh, because it's not just this one weekend, let's schedule another session in three weeks and invite them too, you know? And so we're kind of bringing together now a community of all these people who are already even in this meeting this morning, there were people who I happened to have met who didn't know each other, who were working on different parts of the same problem, and you start you know, bringing them together. I think the other thing I would say, a piece of advice is, have patience. You know, I worked on the Web 2.0 story, which I didn't know was a story, for four years before we actually launched that meme. Yeah, in fact, it was maybe five years. I remember giving a talk in 99 in Berlin, uh, you know, where I had this argument with Richard Stallman, where I was sort of saying, if you had all of Amazon's source code, you wouldn't have Amazon because it's, you know, it's a process. And he's like, well, it doesn't matter because you it's not running on my computer, so I don't have any moral issues about it. <laughs> I was like, well, you're missing the practical point. But, you know, so I was thinking about it all the way back then in 99, but then Web 2.0 name we didn't come up with till 2004. So it's like if you're really engaged, like if you think it's a problem of marketing, you're probably not going to win. If you think it's a problem of I'm trying to change the world, I'm trying to move this discussion along, and bring these people together, you know, it's just a work. And the community is built through the work. You don't build the community kind of as this sort of marketing exercise. Hmm. As you think about the transition to online channels being the primary place people meet, this is a question that's top of mind for our audience in a big way. You think about developer communities and conferences are shutting down, it's all online. And folks have a lot of questions about how to conceptualize, you know, what is the new map of community in a strictly on, online space. So interested if you have any any lessons learned or pieces of wisdom. It sounds like you've had good success transitioning FooCamp online. You know, are, are there other observations you would make? I think the first thing is just reset your expectations. 
I, I would say one lesson is, and I've always felt this way about online, the unit of participation is different. And this is in everything from, you know, back again, going back to those early open source days, one of the things, I wrote a piece once about the architecture of participation. And, you know, one of the big differences in open source was, and this came right out of the architecture of Unix, in my opinion, and of the internet, which was sort of, in some sense, the cousin. And that was a communications-oriented system made up of what David Weinberger once called small pieces loosely joined. You know, a protocol-oriented system in which everybody agreed on the rules of communication. And this really clicked for me. I remember once one of our people was talking with Linus Torvalds, and he said, you know, I couldn't have built Linux for Windows even if I had all the source code. You know, it, the architecture just didn't support it. Mm. And I thought about that, you know, it was just like this giant hairball. And I kind of then, you know, partly as a result of that, I remember giving advice to people like the GIMP team or the open office team. I said, look, you know, it's not going to work because you have this giant, you know, original proprietary hairball of code. You have to actually, and Mozilla figured this out, they had to re-architect it to make it have that architecture where people could work on a piece. They could get their you know, hands around. And it came up again with Wikipedia, you know, where when wikis first got super exciting. And, you know, people were like, we're going to write wiki books. And none of them worked <laughs> because the book was the wrong unit of participation. You know, the article is the right size. People who are passionate about a particular topic, it's small enough they can get their hands around, they can track it, they can, you know, they can work it. And all of the you know, the best open source projects are modular in a, in a fairly profound way. And one of the things that I'm seeing, like with FooCamp or with our, as we've taken our conferences online, we've kind of deconstructed them. So here it is, the, the atomic unit of the online FooCamp is the session. You know, it's like literally we're curating the community that we want around a session, <laughs> not the community that we want around the whole thing. And yes, once you come to a session, you're invited to the whole thing, but it makes the whole thing very fractal, and it's a very different experience. And I think, in a way, giving people lots of affordances for where and how they can plug in is super important. Again, I think that this idea of you know, what is your architecture of participation is super important, and that's everything from, you know, if you have an API, how do people access the endpoints? Is it easy? How easy is it? And I, I think that uh, good developer programs uh, make it really easy for people to use the stuff, to, to play with it, to use it for whatever they want, not what you want. Yeah, I think one thing we've seen is that the shift to online community has created the space for reimagining and making explicit those points of entry mm-hmm. and those units of contribution or participation, to your point. Quite frankly, you know, so much of what's happening in software development today is already virtual and online anyway. You know, the only thing that's changed is what happens at the big companies. You know, a, a small company, you know, I look at O'Reilly, you know, our software development team is all over the country already. Our editorial team, all over the country already. And yes, we do have or had offices where we had a couple hundred people in each, but you have to have a, you know, like if you're not one of the big guys today and you're not a super well-funded startup, uh, you have to have a, a geographically diverse strategy because that's how you can compete with you know, people who can dangle enormous carrots. <laughs> Shifting back to, to open source and the themes you've tracked over the years since popularizing the term, I'm interested how you would assess the, the map of the territory in open source today, namely things like the rise of commercial open source and very large companies you know, being built 
with open source technologies at their core. Did you foresee that uh, when you made the first mean map, or is this a sort of a new emergent thing? Uh, I guess what I would say, you know, first off, I I did say pretty early on that I thought that the most successful companies would not be selling open source software, or you know, they would be people who were using it. You know, if you look, for example, at you know Google and Amazon as exemplars of that trend, they're orders of magnitude bigger than say a Red Hat. <laughs> And, and that fundamental shift that happened with the commoditization of software, I, you know, I got a lot of hate from the free software community when I was saying these things, but I was just saying, look, a lot of things that are religion in the open source community really don't matter. And I don't mean this, you know, they do matter, they matter immensely, and particularly in, in some fields more than others. But there's a kind of unbundling of all the ideas that people thought had to go together. And again, that goes back to the map is not the territory. You know, if you have a map and it does not match reality, uh, you're going to come a cropper. And so if you think the only way to succeed is if you have the open source license, you know, and I go, no, I, I got credited. I didn't even realize it at the time. I just threw off the idea and I got contacted some years back. Well, when you write a preface to this book on inner sourcing, you coined the term in, you know, in some meeting I was at IBM and, 1998, I think, you know, where they were trying to come to wrap their heads around open source. They said, look, if you have a big enough developer community, there's no reason why you couldn't use all of the tools and techniques and community uh, approaches of an open source community within your company and with your customers. You know, it's like I said, you could have a gated open source community. Somewhere in there, I threw in the term inner sourcing. You know, I kind of went, hey, all these things don't have to go together. That's not to say that you know, I do think there's real value in open source licenses. You know, if you look at my patent protest against Amazon in 2000, it was like, dude, you've taken all this stuff and you're not giving back. But again, even there, I just always tried to make the argument that this is good practice, that open source is science, not religion. Hmm. You know, it's not like thou must do these things. It's like, dude, if you actually look at what works, you will find that if you don't give back, your community eventually dries up. And, you know, that's my argument right now, not even with software developer communities, but with Google and Amazon saying, look, look at your ecosystem. Google, you used to send, you know, when you went public, you said our job is to people come to Google and we, you know, we're different from all the portals. They come to Google, we send them on their way. And I said, do you, you get now that more than half search of, of searches end on Google? Because you, that traffic you used to send to websites, you don't send to them anymore. That's just like what happened with Microsoft. You know, the developers are going to go elsewhere, dudes. You know, it's self-interest. You should be figuring out how you keep that game going. <laughs> you know, uh, keep it vibrant because, you know, you depend on it. The web goes belly up. You're a much less interesting company. But it's hard. You know, we're trying to figure that out in my own company. How do you have an ecosystem where the economic incentives are kind of lined up with building the community because it's so easy to say, well, we have to maximize our take. Yeah, you've, you've used this ecological metaphor frequently in your writings, in your speaking, um, marketplaces, marketplace as ecosystem. That's right. What examples do you have of that working really well? Or do you have any favorite examples of that metaphor in practice? Well, for a long time, I felt really good about Google because uh, they worked very hard you know, to make their ecosystem work. I think Amazon did too. And, and I think, you know, both of them lost the plot maybe, you know, seven or eight years ago. 
And we're, we're in a bit of a dark period for uh, that kind of, of enlightened self-interest, I think. I think GitHub is still, you know, kind of a, a good example, you know, in terms of companies. I, I think, you know, under Satya Nadella, Microsoft is actually, you know, if you look at his book, Hit Refresh, and an interview I did with him uh, when that came out, he talked a lot about going back to the original vision of Microsoft. He said, you know, I realized what had gone wrong. Our original goal was to enable software developers, you know, in other words, to make other people successful. And we, we lost sight of that. And he said, so his goal was to try to make Microsoft go back to that. And I think they've done actually surprisingly well, which also happens to fit with another of my predictions come true. I, I actually, uh, back in, you know, the late 90s, uh, Right when it was served, that I said one day Microsoft will be the greatest friend of open source. Uh, you know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, who would have thought that Microsoft would be the owner of GitHub and, in some sense, the platform for, you know, shared community source code? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and they still, obviously, they're still a, a company that wants to make a, a profit in a pretty serious way. And, but they do have a sense that, that they depend on a community in a way that Google seems to have forgotten. What do you think causes companies to lose the plot, so to speak, when it comes to self-sabotage around their ecosystems? I've been using this metaphor that our financial markets are the first rogue AI uh, (laughs) hostile to humanity. (laughs) In my book, WTF, I actually kind of tried to develop that argument. Although I think I tried to shoehorn too many different things into that. It's a memoir. It's uh, three or four different uh, conceptual buckets. But one of the extended arguments is that you look at AI systems or, or really big data algorithmic systems of various kinds, you know, Google search, Facebook newsfeed, and ultimately, you know, as we get into machine learning, you see that there are these optimization systems and they're given an optimization function. And what we see, for example, with Facebook is if you get, you know, like I use Google as an example of it, their best, they got it right. You know, their goal was to send people away and all of the things they were measuring and all of the signals they were using was did people get what they wanted? And we'll make money on the side. And they kind of kept the, the money-making, you know, the ad business was literally off to the side of the, the fundamental user interaction. And then they started to blur the lines. And, uh, you know, over the last, it's, it's really 2011, 2012, they've been slowly chipping away at that wall that they used to have and putting their commercial stuff front and center. But why do they do it? It's because, you know, in some sense, this optimization function this pattern that I recognize that, oh, all these things have an optimization function. Uh, you know, our economy does too. Our economic optimization function is shareholder value. You know, it's like make your stock price go up. The companies think they have this answer in the form of, well, we have super voting stocks, so we're not, you know, we can be long-term thinkers, but it just doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is because they're enmeshed in a system. You know, if your stock price doesn't go up, you can't pay people uh, with appreciating stock, you know, so you're no longer the most attractive place to go work. So they go, oh, oh, suddenly they're caught by the machine. And that machine, quite frankly, is a lot like Nate Bostrom's paperclip maximizer, or I like Elon Musk's version of of the AI gone wrong is the strawberry picking robot that (laughs) is self-improving and it decides that humans are in the way of strawberry fields forever, (laughs) And I go, well, you know, uh, you know, here we are, you know, Facebook, you know, engagement is the most important thing. They set that optimization function. Google starts to say, oh, well, actually, 
we were just kidding about sending people away. Now we, we're telling ourselves it's good enough if people actually, they came and they got what they wanted. That's better for them. And in some way, arguably it is. Anyway, I, I could go down that rat hole for a while, but the point I, I'm making is the optimization function that runs all through our society says, increase your profits, people are a cost to be eliminated. Mm-hmm. You know, that's Nick Boston's paperclip maximizer in a nutshell. I mean, we built one already. You know? <laughs> and it runs our society, at least in America. And, and that's the economy story that I'm trying to tell, which is, I think there's this incredible opportunity with AI, big data, and algorithmic systems of all types to, to take more factors into account and to build systems that are really not actually so single-pointed. I think we'll get to actually a kind of true machine intelligence when we, we take more factors into account, when we don't have these single-pointed optimizers. A conversation with Satya Nadella, we talked about the fact that human beings are satisficers. We're trying to satisfy a whole lot of conditions at once. And if you look back at Google Search or Amazon when they were originally doing really good results as opposed to kind of just feeding people what their advertisers were promoting or their own products, they were taking lots and lots of factors into account saying what's really best. And there are projects where this is happening with AI. There's something called the uh, something sustainability project, uh, but basically where it's AI used to, to do economic sustainability analysis. And, you know, it's just like, how do we take more factors into account? Uh, Paul Cohen, who is the dean of um, the IT group at the University of Pittsburgh, uh, former program manager for AI at DARPA, you know, had this great line. He said, the opportunity of AI is to help humans model and manage complex interacting systems. Mm. And I'm super excited about that possibility that we actually could, in fact, build an economy that isn't based on money. You know, all that stuff that we have in science fiction, you know, Star Trek or Ada Palmer's uh, To Light the Lightning, where it's just like a completely different way of organizing our society with the aid of of machines is really possible. Hmm. So if the optimization function for the economy currently is maximization of, of shareholder value, you know, what advice would you have for early stage founders as they're sort of entering into the market? How can they take into account the sort of complex system you're describing that's that has more inputs than just the singular function? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing that my advice to founders is don't get seduced by the Silicon Valley, you know, gold rush. I think we're maybe getting to the end of that. Most of the great companies were started by people who wanted to solve a problem or they wanted to make something happen. They weren't primarily motivated by cash in the check. And that's not to say that, you know, Hey, Steve Jobs was ambitious. Bill Gates was ambitious. You know, uh, the founders of Intel were ambitious. Um, You know, but I think that we have a great tradition of people who are just like the Google founders. I don't think they planned to get rich. They planned to make a copy of the web and they thought they could do something really cool with it. And I've always loved people who just want to do this thing that they love. And then the money is a way to do it. You know, it's a tool. It's just very hard to keep that, you know, that attitude. But I think more people need to work for that. You know, remember, what is it you're really trying to do? And, you know, I do think that there is a lot of value in moving away, which is what we've tried to do with uh, OETV and the project NDVC that my partner Bryce Roberts runs, which is to find companies that are kind of like O'Reilly, where we were just trying to do a job that we liked and, and make money doing it, you know? <laughs> 
and, you know, so we can keep doing it. And I think there are companies like that. But as worse, Silicon Valley is a lot like Hollywood, you know, where these, these actors and directors and producers who are trying to make a hit movie and they're going, man, Sharknado 3, you know, whatever. It's why we have remakes and, and big blockbuster type movies all the time when there's this chance of hitting the ball out of the park. And a lot of times they're lousy. Same thing in Silicon Valley. And I, I actually say, look, a lot of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs aren't entrepreneurs at all. They're actors. You know, they're actors in, in some venture capitalist movie. And the way you can tell is when you say, how's your company doing? And the answer is, well, we just raised a Series D. That's not how your company is doing. That's how your freaking fundraising is doing. Mm. And, you know, the people, I, I love it when you talk to people and they're like, oh, man, my God, you know, we've got these customers who are really succeeding with our product. That's how your company's doing. Mm. Yeah. And I guess that comes back full circle to this question about community. Because if you have a real community, you care about the people in it. You want them to succeed. They're not there for you. You're there for them. And, you know, a little bit goes back to kind of one of our slogans at O'Reilly, create more value than you capture. And we actually, that goes back, actually, it was, it was uh, Brian Irwin again. I was telling the story of, of yet another uh, dot-com billionaire who had told me, you know, they'd started the company with a couple of O'Reilly books, you know, and... <laughs> And I was saying, I actually felt pretty good about that, you know, and we got 35 bucks or whatever, and they got a billion, you know, <laughs> and, and Bryce says, yeah, we create more value than we capture. <laughs> We've kind of made it our slogan. But, you know, how awesome is that? You know, that we play a role in starting eBay and we got 35 bucks for it, you know, <laughs> you know, we got a role in, you know, starting Mark Cuban's fortune. We got, you know, there's all these people who basically they went and made money because we gave them some knowledge. And we're really proud of that, that we basically enabled a lot of the internet revolution. And we're not there like, damn, we could have got more out of that. You know? <laughs> like, awesome. Look what we did. <laughs> and I, I just feel like there's so many, particularly when you look at open source, you know, it's like, you know, you enable people. And there are companies like Stripe, you know, they're really happy or Shopify. They're like, they're all about like, we are enabling an ecosystem. And I think that's probably the most important thing. Really care about your community. Because if you do, everything else will flow from that. Couldn't agree more. Uh, one more question. This podcast is called Developer Love. And you know, you've had a front seat look. You put yourself in the driver's seat of many interesting and incredible trends. I, I'm interested in thinking about your past and your present. What's, what's one thing you're loving right now? Well, uh, we've been working with a, a small company called Miso on a new thing we're just actually in beta with right now, which is a new interface to all the O'Reilly content on our O'Reilly platform. And it's, it's sort of an answers interface. Hmm. You know, in a lot of ways, we have this massive library of content, and what people do is I want to go uh, find out about such and I want to learn. They find a book, they find a video, whatever. But what if you just need the answer? And, and this is really based on a metaphor I've been working with which is Google Maps. Hmm. I started thinking, and I've, I've been giving this talk called uh, Learning in the Age of Knowledge on Demand. And I start the talk with what's called the knowledge of the streets and monuments of London, the London taxicab exam. Hmm. You know, people study for three or four years yeah. uh, to, to become a human GPS, basically. You know, the, the exam consists of being given two points in London 
at a particular time, and you have to recite the turn-by-turn directions that you use to get from one to the other. And it goes on for four hours or two days. I forget how long it is, but it's a long, you know, multiple, multiple questions of that form. And so I asked this audience of, of online learning professionals, I said, so was the answer to improving the knowledge with today's technology, you know, like some kind of super-duper training, so you could cut that three years of driving around on a motorcycle, you know, using virtual reality, you know, so they could learn it in six months instead. Mm. You know, I go, no, it was Google Maps. <laughs> mm. I was giving this talk in Moscow. I said, you know, like, here we are at the hotel in the outskirts of Moscow. And I said, how do I get to Red Square? I do it once following Google Maps. Now I can do it by myself, right? And I go, the thing I'm doing right now is I'm asking myself, how do we do that for software developers? Mm. And I've been wrestling with that question. A big chunk of it, of course, is, well, what library do I load? You know, because <laughs> a lot of this is building blocks. You know, you're not coding shit from the ground up a lot of the time. It's just like, knowing, wow, there's some way to do it, and I just need to find out what it is. So, can you get the answer? And then, bang, you're. It's kind of like getting a route in Google Maps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so we're we're working to build uh, some technology. And then the other side of that is this environment that we acquired a company called Catacoda, uh, which is uh, basically this great sandbox kind of system where you can you know you can intersperse documentation and code people can execute the code and in some ways it's a broader version of Jupyter notebooks which I also really love uh, but I have this idea of for many people who are not full-time programmers they do some task occasionally why do we actually give them instructions when we could just give them something executable so mm. I'm really trying to kind of think through and reinvent this how do I get some answer? and then tie that directly to an environment where you can actually deliver the answer in a way that people can then work with and customize and modify so that you go, oh, actually, I'm going to go around that way because I can see the route. Uh, so there's just more affordances for people to know how to get from where they are to where they want to go. Mm. So I'm trying to build some of that inside O'Reilly. <laughs> I love it. I you know, I could go on all day. These are these are wonderful metaphors and perspectives. You've been super generous with your time today. So thank you so much for sharing all this. Uh, it really means a lot. Uh, great. Well, I'm really glad to do it with you. Thanks for listening to Developer Love. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider giving us a five-star rating on iTunes and tell a friend. You can learn more about Orbit at orbit.love slash podcast and follow us on Twitter at Orbit Model. 